Today, we are joined by Farah Nabulsi, a Palestinian-British Oscar-nominated and BAFTA award-winning filmmaker. We will be speaking to Farah about her latest project, The Present. Any colonizer in history works extremely hard on dehumanizing the population that they are colonizing and then branding them as barbarians and denying they, they ever existed even in order for that internal external consumption so people of goodwill will not feel with them and will not take action for them and any and all atrocities can be carried out against them without recourse. Not enough people recognize Palestinians in their humanity enough. And I think once a person is humanized to another, then they will no longer accept it for the other. But that's why I'm such a strong believer in the power of film. Because ultimately, I think that's the most powerful means of rehumanizing, telling our stories in a way that speaks to the heart, and then should and would want to take action alongside and with the oppressed. Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of spreading awareness about the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram. And Mikey Intifada, if you think from the river to the sea is a call for genocide, but chanting death to Arabs is A-OK. Yeah, that was that was bad. <laughs> Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. And if you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources at palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com. And feel free to follow us on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Today, we are joined by Farah Nabulsi, a Palestinian-British Oscar-nominated and BAFTA award-winning filmmaker and human rights advocate. We will be speaking to Farah about her origins, her latest project, The Present, her upcoming projects, and her views on the latest Palestinian uprising. So without further ado, let's get right into it. Farah, welcome to the Palestine Pod. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, lovely to meet you, Laura. Well, actually, I already know face to the name and all of that. (laughs) Michael, I I don't know you so well, so this is a first, but... um, That's okay. Not many people do. You know, it's a a very common feeling for me. (laughs) I think you two guys should be on radio. You have such good radio voices. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, but we're also pretty, so people should see our face. Oh, you're so sweet. Let's get started with your own family story. Can you give us a glimpse into your origins, Palestine, where your family is from, and what your relationship with with Palestine was like growing up? Yeah, I mean, look, I born, raised, educated in London, in the UK. Lots of family in Palestine, and my mother was born there. My father's father was born there, but pretty much we're all 100% Palestinian. There's a little bit of Egyptian. And yeah, I used to go to Palestine a lot as a child. And then around the first intifada, nothing for over 25 years. And so my memories of Palestine as a child were, you know, visiting my jiddo's uh, home, telling stories by the fire in the, in the courtyard and, you know, my my aunts making fresh lemonade. And, you know, um, obviously there are some darker memories, but they're not the ones I seem to have held on to over the years. 
but always very connected to Palestine. So even the 25 years where you know, I was back in London and you know didn't visit at all, very aware of, of my roots, my, my heritage, and I'd say involved from a sort of charitable point of view. And, and you know, it was like cycling through Hyde Park for medical aid for Palestine. Or, and what I considered to be very, or at least I thought, clued up. But <laughs> it took me, you know, a trip not too long ago, a few years back to go back as, as an adult for the first time and really see what was happening on the ground in reality that had a huge impact on me. Yeah. Is your family actually from Nablus? Because Nablusi means from Nablus. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so but also so we the villages surrounding Nablus are also considered Nablus as well. And and so we've got sort of a Jamain Burka uh connections as well. Yeah. Okay, wonderful. So at some point in your path, you make this bold move from finance to filmmaking, and you hit the ground running. I mean, just taking a look at your website, you list four film projects, several of which you can actually view through your website. So I encourage everyone to go take a look at farahnablusi.com if you haven't already. Oceans of Injustice, Today They Took My Son, The Nightmare of Gaza, and of course, The Present. The Present is available mostly everywhere in the world uh, on Netflix. And I know you're working on some upcoming projects as well. But let's start with The Present. So I messaged you to see if we could make this interview happen right after I watched the film with my book club and we ended up having a two-hour discussion with 30 girls about the film. So I said, I absolutely have to speak to Farah if I can track her down. I think really for me, the brilliance of the film is how naturally it captures layers of themes and realities of life under Israeli military occupation. It honestly didn't feel like I was watching a movie, but it felt like I was actually following around a real father and his daughter in the occupied West Bank. It, it had a very documentary style to it. And so I think maybe here it's helpful just to provide the audience with a little bit of a reminder that, you know, what the film shows is the Palestinian experience in the occupied West Bank today. And so that is just a portion of Palestinian land, which has been subject to uninterrupted domination and control by a foreign occupying army since 1967. It's a piece of land which has been physically fragmented from the rest of historic Palestine. So Palestinians in the occupied West Bank cannot go to the beach or to 48 territories. They can't visit family and friends there because Israel does not allow it. They have to apply for permits from the occupier to move, and they generally can't go to Jerusalem to see family and friends either. Their life and movement is limited to shrinking enclaves as more and more of their land is stolen for the expansion of the illegal Jewish settlements. The occupied West Bank is a place where checkpoints, an apartheid wall, nighttime raids on Palestinian homes by the occupying army, the arrests of children, women and men, land theft and uprooting of olive trees, settler violence against Palestinians, and extrajudicial killings of Palestinians without any accountability are all the norm. So just two days ago, the IMEU reported that seven Palestinians, including youth like 15-year-old Mohammed Hamayel, were killed by Israel in the last two weeks, and that these killings mostly took place in the occupied West Bank. It's a place where Palestinian homes are demolished by the illegal occupying army, and then Palestinian families are sent the bill. Sometimes they're given the absurd option to demolish their own homes by Israel to avoid fees. It's no exaggeration that life for Palestinians in the occupied West Bank is, to use your words, borrow a term from one of your projects, Oceans of Injustice, it's spirit-breaking. 
With the present, you chose to focus on the reality of segregated roads and checkpoints. And in one of the first scenes, we see the father and his young daughter, Yasmin, at the checkpoint as Yasmin looks out to a Jewish settler family in a car passed through on a Jewish-only road, of course, without any trouble, and they're even exchanging pleasantries with the occupying army. Why was it so important for you to highlight this experience, this injustice, through a child's eyes? When you make a film, you go where your creativity takes you. So it's not that I go, oh, this is what I want to highlight, and then I come up with something. It's, it's something else spurs that inspiration or that idea. The, the premise, the original premise of the story didn't have a daughter even. It was man goes, gets something, comes back, goes through the checkpoints. It doesn't fit. You know, that's the premise. And that's the premise. Generally, when you make a story, you don't go into all of the details and all of the characters. You have your basic storyline of what it is you're, you're telling. And that story was inspired by an actual individual in Palestine who I'd gotten to know over the years. And he lives in an area where there is an Israeli checkpoint about 100 meters from his home. And pretty much no matter where he has to go, who he wants to see, what he wants to get, he goes through that checkpoint. So sometimes numerous times a day, and he goes through that humiliation and frustration and all of it. And that particular checkpoint had a turnstile and had a metal detector, very similar to the one depicted in the film, the main one in the film. And we had a conversation one time. Uh, we'd gone through that checkpoint, and we were standing there about 30 meters away from it on the other side. And I basically said to him, okay, let me understand this. If you needed to bring a new couch home, what do you do? And he said, if it doesn't fit, it doesn't go. And I was like, this is absurd. Now, technically, you're supposed to ask for permission. But they're not here to give you permission. They're not here to make your life easier. So, you know, okay. So the conversation even got more convoluted. All right. What if you needed a hammer? You need to do some DIY work at home. What do you do? And he's like, so that fits, you know. And he's like, are you crazy? Do you want to get me shot, arrested? You know, such an absurd conversation. So that's that's where the premise or the seed of this story was was sown. And then fast forward, I'm you know, I I wrote the, the story. I wrote draft one. I then collaborated with Shafani, who's a filmmaker in her own right, and we co-wrote the script. And it was around draft three where I was like, wait a second, no, there's, there's, there's something really missing in this. I've been to these checkpoints so many times. It's not just adults. It's the young. It's the old. It's people with their children. They're babies. I mean, let alone, let's talk about, you know, women giving birth at these checkpoints and even losing their babies or their own lives at these checkpoints. So I said, no, we're going to add his daughter. And then put in the daughter. And then, of course, it's that, you know, innocence of of children not only being humiliated themselves because you forget that part you know they're not just witnessing their parents go through this kind of humiliation but they too are being humiliated so it's almost like a double injustice or or pain and so they watch their mothers and their hero fathers being subjected to sort of a, a military power with really what could only be described as impotence you know, how do you how do you deal with that? And so that just seemed like a really important element of the story. And therefore, we gravitated towards telling the story in many ways via her, but also 
lending her the agency as well. So this is this is how it evolved. But checkpoints themselves, I mean, for me, again, seed was sown, but I really find it fascinating to sort of examine what it means to enclose an entire population between checkpoints and roadblocks and the wall and and kind of what that can do to a society to a family and on the individual level as well to the human spirit and so it was this kind of examination of you know adults children and even contemplate the bigger societal impact and checkpoints even though they're one part of this massive control system that comes under military occupation and apartheid is something that Palestinians are subjected to every single day. Not all Palestinians every single day, but the vast majority of Palestinians every day, some numerous times a day, some every few days, some, you know, but it's part of the daily life. Whereas, you know, I always say, okay, someone having their home demolished is absolutely horrendous. And probably the trauma of that, you know, certainly far more than a checkpoint in any given moment in time, but it's not that you can say your home is demolished every day. So I just found that a very interesting element of the control system to sort of focus in on once I had the story. I remain amazed when I hear people, you know, who are against Palestinian liberation, because even like you said, isolating this one single aspect of occupation, like the checkpoints, how many people who oppose Palestinian freedom would accept this own reality for themselves? And the truth is they simply wouldn't. They simply wouldn't even last a day. But somehow Palestinians are not only expected to accept it, but you know, not to resist it and, and, and to just lay down and, and die. These situations are simply not conducive with human life. And I think we need to remember that when we ask the impossible from Palestinians, when we ask them to accept this reality, that what we're doing is very simply dehumanizing an entire population of people. That, that's what I was about to pick up on. I don't think it's that there are people who think, oh, you know, Palestinians don't deserve their freedom in the sense that if Palestinians were humanized, if people perceived them in that, in, with that lens, then certainly there would be a sort of, okay, no, this is not acceptable. Because in theory, like you said, everybody, anyone who, who considers even this idea of, of their freedom of movement being controlled, as simple as even this story is, would never accept it for themselves. Why do they accept it for someone else? Well, they'll only accept it for someone else if they don't even consider that person to be someone else. And that really comes down to this dehumanization element, right? And I think once a person is humanized to another, then they will no longer accept it for the other. Humanizing and this concept of empathy are intertwined. To empathize with someone, to really place yourself in the shoes of another, it means that you recognize them as human, as human as you are, and, and that you love, live, laugh, bleed, just like them and, and each other. But not enough people recognize Palestinians in their humanity enough. And when they do, then actually there's this objection to how they are treated. I think a lot of Westerners, for example, certainly I know many who even travel to Palestine and sort of see that reality on the ground and then come back and are, are far more even passionate and active for Palestinian freedom 
and equality. And actually, even, you know, some Palestinians and Arabs, <laughs> believe it or not, because they, they do hold those values very, very, very much close to their hearts, but they have to recognize Palestinians in that humanized lens before they can, because Palestinians have been so severely dehumanized and, and branded as barbarians. And we know that that's on the back of a massive machine. Any colonizer in history, it's, it's settler colonialism is no exception to this, works extremely hard on dehumanizing the population that they are colonizing and then branding them as barbarians and denying they, they ever existed even in order for that internal external consumption. So people of goodwill will not feel with them and will not take action for them. And any and all atrocities can be carried out against them without recourse. That's how it works. And, and, and settler colonialism, Zionism is, is no, no different. Yes. To continue along that trend, Noam Chomsky, he raised concerns over what he believes is, quote, the rise of Judeo-Nazi tendencies in Israel. Speaking to I-24 News, the renowned political dissident, linguist, and scholar, repeated warnings given by Israeli philosopher Yeshayua Leibowitz, who was a public intellectual, concerning the dehumanizing effects of Israel's brutal occupation of Palestine on the victims and the oppressors. Leibowitz said, we have to ask ourselves, where is this youth of ours emerged from? Young people who had no mental inhibitions about committing this atrocity? What inner motivations for such acts could have been at work here? This youth is not a mob, but the product of a Zionist social education. Chomsky said, if you have your jackboot on somebody's neck, you have to find a way to justify it. Repeating Leibowitz's warning, he added, quote, blaming the victim was a direct reflection of the continued occupation and the humiliation of people, the degradation and the terrorist attacks by the Israeli government. You know, uh, it's interesting because uh, I get asked in the present, you know how the one soldier kind of speaks out and sort of says, hey, you know, it's just a fridge. And, and I'm sad to say I don't actually have a story for you because the entire film is based on reality. And, but that part, I don't have a sort of real story to tell you. Oh, someone told me about, you know, that time when a soldier stood up for so-and-so or, you know. But I wanted to sort of lend a little bit of the humanity there. But the point that I've made in some of the Q&As that I've had with people where I'm kind of explaining, actually, that's so fictional in many ways because the Israeli military deliberately don't allow soldiers to remain at specific posts for longer than a specific period of time in order to avoid any kind of personal relationship developing or where you can start to potentially develop any connection or any kind of humanizing of the people that you're supposed to be oppressing, essentially. Actually, when he says, you know, Avi, he knows me, that's really very fictitious, actually, in so many ways, because you would never have uh, soldiers remain at those posts long enough to even kind of get to that place where you'd even know each other by name or, you know, start to sort of say good morning to each other or you'd start to kind of forge any kind of personal, empathetic relationship. Um, and it's exactly because of that, because how do you carry on? What kind of, there's a cognitive dis dissonance otherwise. The hate in many ways is taught the ignorance is either taught or you have refrained from giving the right information to people. And in order to oppress another, you have to instill this idea that who you are oppressing, it's 
it's a necessary evil or it's not evil at all because they're not even human. Like it's, it's, it has to happen. Otherwise, how do you cope with that mentally? And whenever that control system of, of let's say the soldiers breaks down, that's when you get soldiers who refuse to serve or soldiers who break the silence or soldiers who literally need therapy or because at some point certain people kind of start to ask questions or recognize the other as, as a human. Franz Fanon told us this very well about uh, the psychological effects of oppression on the oppressor. It's not something that they're going to get away with without any impact on their own society. And in fact, when we see, you know, what has taken place, for example, with the the settler demonstrations in occupied East Jerusalem, you know, shouting death to Arabs and shouting that we're going to bring a second Nakba and, 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 and shouting horrible, horrible insults to our beloved prophet, peace be upon him. You know, you really start to see how it, it also eats away at them and their own humanity. It is about dehumanizing us, right? But it's also about the extent to which it empties them of human qualities, Yeah, it's to, it's to be pitied. The other thing that Franz Fanon actually pointed out, you know, when we talk about even the death of Palestinians, and it comes back to this, is in order to sort of even have the value and the reaction, and again, the empathy for the dead, you first have to have recognized them in their life, in the living. So when people are like, look how many people, you know, how many Palestinians have been shot and have been, have been killed and are dead. And well, if you've dehumanized them in life, then how would you expect them to be valued in their deaths either? So it really is all very connected. But that's why I'm such a strong believer in art and in the power of film. Because ultimately, I think that's probably the most powerful means of rehumanizing, of drawing empathy, of telling our stories in a way that speaks to the heart, not necessarily the mind. And from there, you can, you can get to a place where people really start to feel with the oppressed And then, of course, should and would want to take action alongside and with the oppressed against injustice. It's all well and good having all those facts and all those figures and, and maps and everything. But unless you speak to people's hearts, you won't access their minds and you certainly won't garner their action. So, I have a question about the actors who played the IOF soldiers. Was it the case where everyone sort of knew the point of the film and everyone was on the same page? Everybody who was in the film was a Palestinian. And we had 48 Palestinians. We had Jerusalemites. We had West Bank. We didn't have anyone from Gaza, but all Palestinians, uh, some of whom spoke Hebrew, some don't. Some who go through checkpoints pretty much part of their life and some, you know, who sometimes go through checkpoints. but given, you know, there are 48 Palestinians, less so. But everybody got got the story and everybody was on board from their heart in the sense of what, what this story was. There was the very bizarre element of dressing some of them up, giving them weapons and saying, act as your oppressors. You're very real present day oppressors. There's a cognitive dis dissonance in that, to be honest. And at one point, that main checkpoint, the surrounding indigenous Palestinians actually thought a real Israeli checkpoint had been set up. And I was horrified at the time. And I sent runners out and I said, please go tell them this isn't real. But I was happy in the sense that it was that authentic 
that they all thought it was real. And it's a bit bizarre, but like we talked about this in a Q&A not too long ago. Is it the Stanford project where you have the jailers actually becoming very aggressive <laughs> against the, the fake prisoners in that experiment? I'm not saying that our, you know, our, our actors did that, but there was a moment of like, oh, okay, we're in charge now. This isn't a period piece. This isn't a, a film about something that happened sort of 50 years ago. Everybody went home a few days later and went through checkpoints. And, and the, the female soldier in the film, her home was raided two weeks later. I have video footage. That's her reality. That's all their reality. So it was, it was strange in some ways. But in Arabic, we say, fish yani fish it's not necessarily to let off steam. It's satisfying. Fish elvik. Hmm. So like if I shouted at someone because he'd done something really bad, someone would say, ah, fashiti elbik, did you get it out? You know, fish, fish elbik, you know? So fashina elbna, we, we, <laughs> by telling the story, we let it out. I guess it was like therapeutic even, right? Yes. That's what, that's kind of what fish elbik is. <laughs> yeah. The film was amazing. First off, I didn't say that up top, but I should have. It was. It Thank brought you. me to tears. It made me laugh. It was a roller coaster, and it felt so real. I heard that the film actually went undercover at a real checkpoint. The scene where everyone is kettled together, it was the main character and a ton of Palestinians going about their daily routine. Have you had any blowback from the occupation as a result of revealing the realities of the apartheid system? Yeah, so so scene two is that real checkpoint, yes, and there's thousands of Palestinians really in the most inhumane industrial checkpoint, checkpoint 300 in Bethlehem. And yes, very much documentary style, that scene. Only Saleh Bekri, our actor, was was the only fiction, if you like, in that scene. And we went in with two cameras. We didn't take any permissions and all of that. And that's documentary. I don't think anyone has a, a right really to give permission to to film, you know, this, this monstrous and humane checkpoint. Now, the interesting thing is that checkpoint has been filmed. Many journalists go in, and I guess also documentary filmmakers, uh, go in and film that checkpoint. We knew how far we could go before we got into the line of vision of the military, supposedly, or where the cameras were and all that. You know, we tried to be kind of, yeah, like you said, sort of undercoverish. But ultimately, this was a fiction film, right? So. I think they, meaning the military, maybe are used to journalists. And actually, there's a bit of an arrogance, perhaps, of, okay, kind of like, you know, when, when things are filmed that are going on elsewhere and other checkpoints. And, you know, there's this arrogance that we're always going to be immune and that impunity is always offered to us. So film away, you know, not to say that they saw us filming. I'm just saying I think that that's been the case, you know, many a time, even at that checkpoint. And it was interesting, even the Palestinians queuing, you know, a couple of comments came along where it was like in Arabic, you know, sauru, sauru, or again, they didn't know we were doing a fiction film, thought maybe we were journalists and saying, what difference is going to make? Go ahead, film us, show the world, no one cares. Now, we weren't there as journalists and we weren't there as the documentary film. We were there as a, a fiction film that yes did end up very much in the mainstream and far and wide and on netflix and at the oscars and so it was a very different ball game but we didn't face any blowback i don't know if we would have had the blowback had they sort of noticed that we were filming at the time or not i can't speak to that and since then 
I nothing specific to that checkpoint. And to be really honest, nothing even worth mentioning regarding the entire film. We've seen time and again how uh, the apartheid state has absolute contempt for journalists. Just take a look at what was happening in the last couple of weeks in Sheikh Jarrah with the Al Jazeera journalist, for example, who was totally manhandled. It was caught on film. She was arrested. They they twisted her arm. They eventually released her, and then they banned her from uh, reporting from Sheikh Jarrah for, I think, about two weeks. And it seems like every day there's images coming out of Palestine where you see the occupying army manhandling, very aggressive with journalists, arresting them, pushing them, international or Palestinian. It doesn't matter. Y'all remember when beating up journalists was a war crime? <laughs> still is. <Yeah. laughs> Technically, it still is. Even in Gaza, you see how they've even shot journalists and then yes. they've been killed. I think, you know, Checkpoint 300 is considered soft occupation you know so uh, you know thousands of palestinians queuing every morning to go to work is yeah but when it comes to you know exposing more and more of the atrocities that you know involve obviously people killed and kicked out of their homes and that that's you know considered a sort of maybe a heavier weight or a uglier even side of of, of military occupation we did get a bit bolder and bolder like at some point i was like could you get up there? <laughs> Could you try here? And at first it was like quieter and, and you get bolder and, and we managed to get some pretty good footage. So. so while racist depictions of Palestinians and glorification of the occupation are not new to film and TV industry, there is a slew of new TV shows that are glorifying Israeli secret service while demonizing Palestinians. It can only be described as propaganda. Fauda, meaning chaos in Arabic, follows an undercover Israeli special forces unit known as the Musta Rabim, who disguise themselves as Palestinians to infiltrate Palestinian towns, villages, and protests. They are particularly known for blending into protests dressed as young Palestinian men and kidnapping protesters. They have also been known to pull out pistols in the middle of protests and start shooting the Palestinians they were embedded with. Our Boys dramatizes the infamous events surrounding the killing of three teenage settlers and the subsequent killing of Palestinian boy Muhammad Abu Qadir. The Spy, starring Sasha Baron Cohen, also glorifies the Israeli intelligence as an agency of good fighting bad, despite the fact that we have clear documentation of the Shin Bet's systemic human rights abuses and crimes against Palestinians and others, including torture, violent interrogation, which are at odds with international law, Jewish law, and all considerations of morality. With that in mind, what is it like telling your story in an environment where the narrative has largely been dominated by Zionist propaganda? I really don't think towards it at all. I'm I'm just telling the stories I want to tell with absolutely no thought towards the stories that they are telling or that is being told from elsewhere. I do recognize, and you need only look at Hollywood as the perfect example, especially how Arabs and Muslims and even the kofia has been presented, the power of, of how film, cinema can influence perceptions in the world. So I recognize that there is a power in that. But ultimately, there's a, an African proverb, until the lion learns how to write, the story will always glorify the hunter. So if we're not writing our stories, if we're not telling our narratives, 
then others probably will will actually. And we know our narrative has been hijacked very much by our oppressors, by their cronies. But ultimately, it is on us to tell our narrative and our stories, to counter those incorrect narratives. Essentially, they're using various tools to tell the narrative how they want to tell it and how they perceive it. I can't stop that. That's what they're doing. What I can do, what we can do, is tell our narratives. And ultimately, the beauty of our narrative is that we have truth and right and international law on our side. So we, we don't need to go to extremes of making stuff up or sensationalizing things. We literally have so many stories we could tell that are real, that are authentic, that are powerful, but it's up to us to tell them. And hopefully, of course, things like the funding and the support for, for that. But when I work, I'm not there thinking of their narrative. I'm thinking of our narrative. And that's it. And I'm not going to go about even attempting to use their tricks and trades and try and dehumanize them in order to rehumanize us. I'm interested in our human stories. That's how I forge forward. I'm, I just want to tell our stories the best way I, I know how and, and can grow in that, in that process. One of the beautiful but more subtle elements of resistance and dignity that we see in the present is how Palestinians maintain their manners, their respect, and their culture, really, in the face of these injustices. So, for example, letting the elderly woman pass at the checkpoint in the beginning of the film, or when Yasmin and her father are at the store buying the refrigerator and they're greeted by the salesperson who offers them coffee and tea and sweets for Yasmin. This is so Palestinian. It, it resonated with me right away. The other exchange that I really appreciated was when the father asks if they will be able to deliver the refrigerator back to his house, which of course is a rather mundane request for anyone living in the West or anywhere else really. The salesperson responds, the most beautiful delivery. And of course, it does not turn out to be but there is this will to imagine a reality where the occupation does not exist, even if it controls and dominates every aspect of Palestinian existence in the occupied West Bank. I find this really beautiful and also really authentic. I mean, if you know Palestinians, you know that this is how we are. So many of our pre-1948 cultural mannerisms persist, even though the reality that most Palestinians live today makes them impossible to actually act out. You know, so for example, the salesperson could have said, oh, absolutely not, you know, the checkpoints are going to get in our way and, you know, responded with anxiety and panic. Even just how sweet the father remains to his daughter, despite the fact that he is constantly being humiliated and degraded. You know, when he tells her she's the most beautiful girl in all of Palestine. Yeah, there, I mean, there's so many things. I don't want to give away the whole film. Can you tell us a little bit more about your thought process when writing these specific interactions into the script. Um, and as I mentioned, I mean, they resonated with me so much because I saw on the screen who we are as a people. Yeah, both both Hind and I, you know, we're very familiar with our people and, and, and we're very familiar with being there on the ground. And Palestinians are some of the most hospitable, generous people on planet Earth. And I hear this not just, you know, it's not just me and my echo chamber of like, what I believe and what I've personally experienced, it's what a lot of even foreigners who visit sort of take home with them and go, my God, despite all that adversity, they're just so friendly and welcoming and giving. And, and even despite the little that they have, 
they're still ready to give it to to you know in their in their hospitality and, and that's something beautiful about about Palestinian people really and so that was something we certainly wanted reflected in the film because that would add that authenticity and that's why we have these kind of characters like you said along the way and that's who we are and i think the word also is this dignity you know that that, 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 that despite everything we try to hold on to our, our our dignity as much as we can um which by the way i think is something saleh bekri as an actor brought to that role so beautifully it's what i wanted yusuf to have this kind of uh, intensity and dignity so yeah it's it's exactly what you said and and i, I we wanted that that personal element and also i think it's important in storytelling that you're not in one continuous line of misery or one continuous line of joy or what you know you have to kind of go on a little bit of up and down and have some comic relief but you know moments of just softness and sentimental elements and then obviously moments of higher passionate emotional whether it's anger or extreme joy or whatever it is but so that's also part of the storytelling process as well as for the role of yasmin i read in an interview that you found her and auditioned other children it was important to you to cast somebody living in palestine and i really respect that decision because almost no actor could study or replicate life under occupation and portray it better than somebody living that reality every day was that one of the reasons it was so important to cast a child living in palestine so just so you know the interesting part is that a, a friend of mine who doesn't live in Palestine actually said to me you know what about my niece when i told her i needed to cast a young 8-year-old girl i'd love her to speak great arabic i'd love her to be living in palestine and 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 look like her father in the film it was quite a long list anyway she suggested her her niece and immediately when i saw her i felt completely in love with her and so i go to palestine and i meet with her and she'd never acted before she'd been an extra once or twice on a film set because her father's actually a production designer who by the way we had just hired as our production designer even though there was absolutely no connection at the time like i didn't know that so amazing and i fell completely in love with her she's extremely emotionally intelligent and very confident and i just thought this is too good to be true so then i went off and auditioned some other children who were considered kind of trained actresses but my gut knew that Medium was the one so I went right back to her and they say like don't put children in your films and then if you do you should have backups in case they back up and you know so forth but I knew she was the one and the thing about her is so she's a a 48 Palestinian so while of course she has been through you know numerous checkpoints in her 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 parents and family come back and forth into the west bank you know many times so she is aware it's not necessarily in her daily daily life but like i said she's a very emotionally intelligent young girl and connected with what this is all about and aware so i feel like she definitely got it even though she may not have been sort of a west bank palestinian you know living breathing checkpoints every single day she definitely got it she definitely had the empathy she she was really an absolute pleasure and just had to explain a few things to her and she would she would dive in yeah she did a fantastic job something your film made me ask for was how much time as a people have we lost caught up in the formalities of being subjects of occupation and apartheid 
How many people on this planet can say that it takes them an entire day from morning until night to go shopping for groceries, you know, to buy a fridge? I don't know if you have a comment on this, but I, I think just the idle time in the film, the, the way that it was presented really made me stop and think about that and then multiply that by the millions of Palestinians that exist and by the you know 73 years that we have been subject to this colonial domination. Even just considering the Palestinians, the millions of them that are continuing to, to wait in refugee camps in the Arab world until today, uh, until 2021, just waiting to go home. So I don't know if you want to share maybe some impressions on this notion of time lost and sure. waiting. Yeah, yeah. for sure. I mean, to me, that was a major thing theme of the film without question so it makes me happy that you say that because ultimately really what is the most precious commodity to everybody on this earth in this life it's time not money because they say you know money is time <laughs> time is money no it's time and really the the theme of this film in many ways was yes of course you know this basic human right of freedom of movement but time wasted time stolen time lost and that's why there was that comment in many ways to do with the his watch this idea that not only has he inherited this from his father which was very reflective of this idea of we've inherited our heritage on this land is, is taken from us but also they asked for his watch at one point and you know literally he is handing over time he's in that in that cage with no idea of time because they've taken that watch. And that's the whole idea. We don't even want you to, 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 to be able to keep track of time, like, which is insane, absolutely insane. And yes, very reflective and symbolic of the bigger aspect of, of how much time has been stolen, taken, whether it's decades, you know, in terms of what we could be as a people, what we could have developed into in many ways and evolved and then of course the on the individual level what does that mean to a human being like you said again you know breaking of the spirit what is the most annoying thing in let's say western world is like oh i wasted so much time you know at, in, in that waiting room or i wasted so much time at the airport or what a waste of time like it's really it's such a kind of first world complaint that we hear every day from everyone right so I think that's also why the film resonated with international audiences, because I think that that was such a relatable aspect of like, oh my God, it's one thing to say, yes, freedom of movement as well. So that was something that people like, you know, wait, you, you're going shopping and you have to go through these. And even a lot of people just assumed it was borders. He's crossing a border at least. And you're like, no, no, this isn't a border. <laughs> these are checkpoints between Palestinian villages and towns and cities and lands. So that already just blows their minds. And they're like, wow, so this is what some Palestinians go through for that. Okay. And now they're watching time literally stolen and that the Palestinians are having to just take it. No recourse. And you're taking it from people who are heavily armed. And and the so I think I think that that speaks you know, very much to a, a, a Western kind of mindset of, of, of the preciousness of time. And it is supposed to be reflective of everything you just mentioned. So it makes me glad that that's kind of, you know, something you very much picked up on.
Another reality that the film paints exceptionally well is the extent to which Palestinians are gaslit simply for existing. Being asked questions by the soldiers at the checkpoint, like, why are you here? When in reality, as you mentioned, this is a Palestinian man with his daughter, you know, who is steps away from his home on his own land. And we talk a lot on the Palestine pod about how Zionism and Zionist logic essentially flips logic on its head. And how, of course, in reality, in this situation, the question is, why is there a foreign occupying army here? It's not, why am I here? It's, why are you here? But this is something that the father doesn't have an opportunity to ask, right? Well, um, well that's why he doesn't answer him. You know, right. there's a, you, I don't know if you know yes, this, but he yes. gets asked it and he does not answer him. And then he asks it again and he gets sarcastic because at that point. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and that's exactly it. I mean, Palestinians on the ground, uh, especially in the occupied West Bank, are forced into these absurd interactions with soldiers where they simply have to justify not only their existence, but that they go shopping for groceries, that they need to go run an errand. And so just imagining having to have this interaction multiple times a day for decades and what that does to your mentality. How does that shape you and change you, even in ways that you don't necessarily want it to, right? But you're constantly forced into these conversations where you have to say, well, I have to go buy groceries. I need to go buy food. Like, why do you need food? Well, I need food because I'm a human. Like, you know, how, where is this going exactly? And, and why do I have to explain all of this? Can you talk exhausting. to us a little? Yeah, it's very exhausting. It's exhausting to watch, <laughs> actually. But I think Palestinians know why they're being asked this it's exactly too exhausting it's exactly too frustrate them so i think a long time ago they picked up on that like it was like okay it, as ridiculous as it is and it doesn't make it any easier don't get me wrong but i think that the absurdity of it is it, much more abs absurd for people outside of palestine to witness this and go oh, this is absolutely ridiculous and exhausting for palestinians that have literally been on the receiving end of this and subjected to this for decades, they are aware that this is a process of wearing me down. This is a process of humiliating me. This is a, it's not that they, they know why I'm here or, you know, so for them, it's, it's, I guess, part of that resistance, that, that dignity that Palestinians have is to go, okay, go ahead, ask what it is you're asking. And yes, some are obviously going to get frustrated. And that's why the father in many ways it's only at the end where it's like, it snapped, you know? I think any of us would have snapped way earlier, way earlier, you know? Of course. That, yeah, so so I don't know. I, I think, you know, it's almost like I want to say Palestinians are just tougher skinned in many ways, you know? They, they, they've developed a thick skin in, in so many ways. And I guess you have to when you don't really have a choice. So I think that is a form of resistance. Yeah, I remember being in occupied Hebron in 2010 and walking down the street with Isa Amro, who is one of the activists of, of Hebron. And we were stopped by Israeli soldiers who knew him very well. And they said, he can't keep continue on this road. This road is for Jewish people only and internationals. And we said, yeah, but he lives here. And we tried to, you know, engage with them in a discussion based on logic. It obviously didn't work. Exactly. There's so much more that could have been in this film about checkpoints. I mean, it, really, there was there. There's an abundance more. And I've, I've been in scenarios where I've I've watched literally what can't be a, a young girl, maybe 
no older than 19 years old, a teenage Israeli soldier, literally shouting at a, an old, an elderly couple. And I just, to the point that I actually intervened and sort of just said, why are you shouting? Why are you talking to them that way? You know, like, and she sort of looked at me like, see, they're, they're an elderly couple, I have a little bit of the respect, you know, and it, it was totally baffling for her that I would speak up. And I've, I've, I've seen a, a man who has been held up with a young child with him. I've been at checkpoints where literally we're standing and we're all piling up on top of each other and, and the, you know, the turn sound, the buzzing and, and we've just all been stopped and you can just see, you know, the soldiers just kind of chatting and chilling. And so that's where that absurd conversation that comes in when someone says, well, can you concede that maybe these checkpoints are for security? And you're like, okay, <laughs> all right, let, really? Because that really begs the question of security for who, really? Because this is certainly does not take a genius at any one of these checkpoints to know there's absolutely not security Palestinians. So who? And really, I want you, who just asked me that question, to answer that. Who's security? I want to hear you say it. Who's security? The occupier? Or the, surely you don't mean the sort of 400,000, 500,000 plus illegal Israeli settlers in the West Bank. Like, who are we talking about here? And so it, it's, it's really these checkpoints, when you just examine them, even for a short amount of time, or you go to a few, you ask the right questions, you have your eyes open. I mean, really open. You need to understand, really, what is this about? Who is being processed? Who is not being processed? And so forth. Then it doesn't take a genius to see quite clearly what's going on. It's also very clear that it, it's not for Israeli security to begin with, because very clearly these checkpoints are on Palestinian land between Palestinian cities and villages and other Palestinian cities and villages. And yes, it's true that Israel has moved hundreds of thousands of settlers onto occupied Palestinian land in violation of international law, but those settlers are armed and they collude with the occupying army. So the question really is, how can it be in anyone's security to exactly. subject an entire population to this type of treatment. That, that's actually something that I would say totally goes against security for anyone. And why, why on earth are those checkpoints there in the first place? Well, they are part of the system, the structure of occupation. So ultimately, it just doesn't add up. It doesn't add up at all. And then this idea of the separate roads and what you just described as well in Hebron, that's apartheid 101. Along the way of getting the film developed, did you run into any troubles of people gaslighting you, saying things like, oh, it's not marketable, people don't want to see this type of content, and you certainly don't have to name any names if you don't want to, but we do love when the tea is piping hot, so feel free to name drop anyone who was exceptionally wrong about your BAFTA-winning Oscar-nominated film. <laughs> That's a funny question, Michael. <laughs> I know that there were definitely naysayers. I'm sure there, I'm sure. I very much kind of, in some ways, so personally also put my money where my mouth was in terms of, you know, when I'm going to forge forward with something, I'm going to get involved no matter what. And I think on the back of my sort of first three short films, I had individuals who kind of believed in my work already. You call them patron of the arts or Palestinian filmmaking, if you like. And they, no, no one ever asked me what, what my story was about. They, they, they kind of just believed in what I was doing and that I had already made a few films. And so they kind of got on board 
without actually even know, knowing the premise of my story. But what I do say is quite funny is that I think if I had told some people, maybe not the people who supported me, but if I'd even attempted to raise, let's say, funding from individuals and had told them the story, no doubt I would have had some people going, yeah, that's not going to go far or no one's going to be interested or, you know, mustahil in Arabic, no yeah. way, never going to happen. <laughs> and I also say, I wonder if this same film had been made 10 years ago, if it even would have reached where it's reached, who knows? And, and timing, really, with everything in life, is, is there's, there's an element of timing that's very important. So I don't have names for you because I didn't <laughs> actually experience anyone kind of outright saying, yeah, this isn't going to work. But I do know that from day one, when I decided I was going to make films and I was going to start telling sort of Palestinian narrative and stories and human stories that initially there were people who weren't interested in 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 you know supporting my work if you like and it was probably on that basis and now I feel very much like right here's your proof of concept are we done now and I don't mean that just towards anyone who wants to help fund a film I mean that towards the entire Palestinian conversation are we done now you know Khalil Gibran said in battling evil, excess is good. For he who is moderate in announcing the truth is presenting half truth. He conceals the other half out of fear of the people's wrath. And I feel like in telling our Palestinian stories, it's almost been half truths. It's like, oh, fear out of how, you know, how's that reaction going to be? And how are people going to, oh my God, we are battling something. We need to be completely 100% with our truth. Now that doesn't mean it needs to be vulgar or distasteful or bad quality. So what I mean, I'm talking about we need to be bold and unapologetic about our truth. And I feel that that's what the present does. It was a it was a film that I didn't sugarcoat with anything. I di I didn't go to the extremes of what happens at the checkpoint. Sure, and that's maybe for another film, another time, and who knows. But that's that's not where I was at. But I did not sugarcoat anything. I did not self-censor. I, I told the story I wanted to tell, the way I wanted to tell it. And I did not leave room for compromise. And usually that comes when the integrity of his story becomes diluted. That usually comes because someone who has the financial power comes along, who may not have the same philosophy as you or the same opinions or might be less sympathetic or whatever it is. And they're the ones who start compromising your story or, or making you second guess it or advising you maybe to change it. Now, it's not to say that advice isn't good sometimes. You should have a listen. But generally, at least for me, it was stick to the integrity of what I wanted to tell the way I wanted to tell it. I think that now I can turn around and go, there's your proof. Can we get going now? Can we, can we really start telling our stories the way... We need to be telling them with less of the, oh, how do I, how do I half tell this? Tell our truth. That's, that's it. Dr. Steve Salaita came on this podcast and said something very similar. He said, never give an inch, never cede any ground intellectually, never back down. And that's something that I really respected about the present is you ceded no ground. And so it's very important while you don't seed anything on, on your truth, on your reality, on your facts, on your storytelling. Yes. But there's no harm in also lending empathy to them because A, not only does that open their minds and hearts more to your story, but B, that's what makes you that much more human as well.
It's like when you were saying earlier, Lara, that, you know, when you see those people in Flag Day hurling insults of literally genocide and death to Arabs and, and how that really takes away from their humanity, you almost pity them, right? Because it's like, oh, okay, this is, this is what is this, a soulless people? Or, and, and I think it's really important to go, well, why would they shout that? Where does this come from? And if you actually can have that kind of moment of conversation, I see you have so much fear or you have so much, you have, whether it's the trauma or the inherited trauma or the deliberate fear mongering that your leaders are feeding, whatever it is, and it takes all sorts of faces and whatever. If you can name that and have that conversation, that empathy, you'll be interested. You'll be so surprised to see how that kind of, you know, okay, hold on. She understands me. They, you know, and at that point, when you're telling your story, they're almost that much more open to kind of hear your story. So that that's a very important dynamic, I think, in the storytelling process. Yeah, I just want to say that I'm really happy that you shared that quote because it's very necessary in, in for the moment that we're living in where politicians are telling us to tone down our rhetoric, where we're being accused of exaggerating by calling it apartheid, even though it's been called apartheid by, you know, leading human rights organizations for decades, by Palestinians for decades. There's mountains and mountains of evidence that show that Israel is guilty of the crime of apartheid under international law. And yet when we use the terminology, we're, we're, you know, perceived as perhaps exaggerating or creating, you know, a big deal out of something which really isn't so bad. Or, And so I think it's important to keep that in mind that we have to be unapologetic about our story and, and, and our narrative. Yeah. And, and when you use certain language, it's considered you know, controversial or, you know, extreme until it's not. And so, you know, that, that, this is the key here. You have, you have to keep having those conversations until it suddenly becomes, okay, actually, yeah, it is. You know, like, like, the natural reaction to, to, to such language and is to be defensive, is to, you know, find ways to avoid it. Because ultimately, people would rather stick their heads in the sand than have to deal with, with that reality, right? So people have to kind of, you know, get used to the language and realize like, okay, because we're going to have to face all of this and then we can start facing it. So the first, the, the first obstacle is, is the language. And if you're not using the right language, how do you ever expect <laughs> to solve the problems, right? And this is what I say actually to Israelis as well is people sort of like, what's the solution and what's the solution? I'm like, well, step one, step one is acknowledge, acknowledge the, the, the injustice that was done and is being done. How can you expect a solution if you're still even in denial of the, of the crime, of the problem? You, you don't know the problem. How do you solve it? And so I thought that what happened recently with 48 Palestine, where, you know, all of a sudden you had sort of Jewish Israelis in shock in many ways of like, wait a second, what's going on? I thought we were all coexisting. And it was like, sabah al-khair, good morning, everyone. (laughs) No, Palestinians, uh, you know, they they were not, what are you talking about? They've been under your boot for so long. You're, You're shocked about this? And that's because they were their heads were in the cloud. An example of the absolute absurdity of the usage of language came when recently a white South African rabbi 
called out the president of South Africa for calling Israel an apartheid state. He argued, he said, it's not an apartheid state. And leave it to a white guy to explain apartheid to the president of South Africa. <laughs> yeah. Well, interestingly enough, you have all of them saying it's, it's even worse because it's a, it's apartheid and this military occupation. But if we if we kind of get to a place where we're normalizing this language, then we can no longer have people deny the reality of it. So I think that's a very important part of the process. The good news is. A couple of years ago, I used to, when I'd speak sort of at universities and at some of the festivals, but it was mostly sort of universities and on panels, and I would bring up this word apartheid. And I'd say, you know, about five, ten years ago, it was like, you know, people, it was a complete taboo to use it, even though, you know, you had Ben White, who, by the way, we should all salute because he wrote the book in 2008, 2009, Israeli Apartheid, A Beginner's Guide, uh, which, by the way, is fantastic. and. Uh, that was 2008, 2009, but it took a while before that word was kind of even allowed. And then you had John Kerry say it, you know, on, on national TV. I, I thought that was a landmark moment, actually. And so what I would say in these talks is like, you know, you may be feeling not so hopeful, but things like language, like apartheid, are coming into the mainstream. And then I think about it sort of a few years later, look where we are you know, and, and, and human rights watch in their report. And, and, and I know it, it, you know, Palestinians have been saying it for ages, but that's not the point. The point is that nothing is a switch on and off. These things take time and they are a process. And if you look at the last 10 years, the last 20 years, the last five years, you will see that in terms of in, in the world arena, if you like, in the court of world opinion, that dimmer light is coming on and it's coming stronger and stronger and stronger. But it takes time. It's not an on-off button here. Mm -hmm. What's happening on the ground in Palestine has never been worse, of course, in the sense yes. of, you know, it's never been an even more fascist government as of, you know, a few days ago. But in the court of world opinion, I feel things are shifting and, and, and people are getting it more and understanding it more. And it's up to us to also keep telling those stories. If like this... Right. <laughs> exactly. I think I just want to add on to what you've just said, which is that we are shifting the narrative. The tides are turning. I mean, you saw, for example, in the UK, where you're from, massive marches in support of Palestinian liberation, the largest in history. But at the same time, you know, the politics remains completely divorced from the public opinion. You know, we've also seen over 385,000 people in the UK sign a petition urging the UK government to impose sanctions on Israel not so long ago. And of course, the official government response was a no and a regurgitation of the pro-Zionist narrative with no consideration of basic rights for Palestinians. So, you know, one thing I wonder is <laughs> when, when does it... When do we reach the turning point, right? You know, more and more people are becoming educated. More and more people are realizing that we are dealing with settler colonialism. We are dealing with apartheid, that the situation on the ground is absolutely horrendous, that none of us would ever accept to live under those conditions, that there's millions of refugees waiting to go home whose right to return under international law has been violated consistently for 73 years. It almost seems like when it comes to the mainstream discourse, we haven't moved very far. I think, you know, examples like the UK government, but also, you know, what's happening right now in Israel, the election of the Naftali Bennett government, which, as you just mentioned, is worse than its predecessor. Um, and also, I mean, even what's going on in the US, people are changing their minds. We're seeing polls more and more in support of Palestinians, 
but the politics remains completely the same, and you don't have to look very far. All you have to do is take a look, for example, at the $735 million arms sale that was approved by the U.S. to Israel on the heels of the latest genocide in Gaza. So we're, we're under the impression that even though there are changes in public opinion, and they are happening, and, and, and I see them just like you do, there is still this tremendous resistance at the level of the mainstream political narrative, whether it be in the U.S. or the U.K., governments which are pro-Zionist and which are very supportive of Israel financially, uh, diplomatically, um, and also, you know, in every in every other way. So, what are your thoughts on that? Where, yeah, I was going to say just a softball to finish off. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so first of all, you know, on the hope factor, just to be clear, I have lots more that I'm hopeful about. You know, we just talked about a bit of the language element and how, yes, things are shifting, but. You know, for example, this idea of this unity into father, for example, I, I love that. I love it. And I think that that we've never seen such unity in almost I don't even want to say one generation. I wrote that in the Hollywood Reporter that even two, three generations. I mean, the, the, the recent reactions was this kind of like despite the lack of leadership, if you like, or the absence of leadership or the, you know, crappy leadership, whatever, you know, you 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 saw Palestinians come together from all corners of the earth, as well as on the ground, whether it be 48, Jerusalem, Gaza, refugee camps, West Bank, you know, all around. And that for me was really beautiful and inspirational and unprecedented, actually. And it didn't require, didn't require Mandela or a Gandhi. It didn't, it required the, the will. And ultimately it comes back to this, this overwhelming mood, if you like, of how much more can Palestinians take? How much more oppression? How, how, how much further can you press that boot on the neck of Palestinians before, you know, it, it cracks or there is that, that reaction? And so that has let me hope as well. Now, what darker forces count on is that you you lose the will or the capacity or the strength, the energy to continue. And as long as we continue to work in unity, there are gonna be times when you know certain elements of the struggle are gonna get tired and then the next you know next group need to take over or certain elements of the struggle, whether it's inside, outside. But it's it's the continuity of it that's really important. No on-off switch. I know we saw these unprecedented reactions in the last few weeks, but I was under no illusion like suddenly this was the moment everyone was going to strike sanctions. Like, no, right. of course not. I was wishful thinking. Ultimately, it's about the fact that the the louder public opinion gets over time. And this is very much, yes, a grassroots element. Do not expect governments to suddenly just wake up and go, ah, oh, we've decided this is enough of oppression for Palestinians. Because frankly, that should have happened decades ago, right? So really, it's this grass movement energy. And, and, and ultimately, even when it came to South Africa, actually, and bringing it into apartheid South Africa, yes, at the end, the sanctions and all that came, but they didn't come, they didn't fall from the sky. It was public opinion that had put the pressures on public policy and government eventually from the bottom up. And even things like theater of resistance, you know, were a major part of that. And that's where I feel like, you know, film and, 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 and resistance via film, for example, are a very important part to play in all of this, like the present, you know, in that sense. And, and then the media and conversations that that allowed for as well. So there's so much and so many different elements to this. So, again, it's not an overnight thing. Yes, maybe there'll be a tipping point. 
And one day we'll all have a discussion about what that moment was. Yeah. You know, retrospectively, who knows? But again, wishful thinking that it's going to be sort of one specific thing at one time. We like to romanticize these things. Say that yeah. was the moment. But it, no, it's, 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 it's the push of all of it. And, and really the most important thing is that unity. And that's the part I don't want us to forget from what's just happened because that's the part that makes a difference. Checkpoints, the present. What do they also do, those checkpoints? They separate Palestinians from Palestinians. That's their other role, right? Let's think about that. What does the wall do? That separates Palestinians from Palestinians. Forget just Palestinians from Israelis. No, no, it's Palestinians from Palestinians. What does the, the blockade of Gaza do? It's separate. The whole point of all of this is to divide and conquer, to fragment, to fragment, to fragment. Let's not fall for that anymore. Let's let's recognize that the power is in the unity. When you have the bus boycott, you know, the Montgomery bus boycott, you know, the you know, Martin Luther King and that whole movement of like, they didn't have the money. They didn't have, they had their feet. They said, right, we're not going to get on those buses. And in unity, they chose not to get on those buses. It was the unity. It was the unity that 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 forged them forward, despite all of that. You know, it's unity. So that's the part of this recent round or this recent lesson, if you like, that I really hope stays. And if we can continue with that, forge forward, I believe as you see the tides are changing, they'll change more and more and more and in a bigger scale. And eventually it does reach a place where governments cannot ignore ultimately, you know, the populace. But really it's a, it's you have to engage in a way where they recognize, and this is where the whole intersectionality of things is like, my freedom is your freedom, your freedom is my freedom. And this is a really important part of the process. So beautifully articulated, and we're so excited for everything that you've done so far and everything that you're going to do. Thank you for being a voice for Palestine. You personally inspired me so much as a Palestinian in exile. I, I remember watching your videos on YouTube when you were speaking at universities and you know learning from the way that you articulate things. You're so poised and very elegant when you speak about <laughs> apartheid and occupation that I was like, I have to learn from her because I, you know, I want to just get angry. So, but, but I do Thank appreciate you. that. I do appreciate that style and that delivery and it, and it shows of course, in all your work. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thank you for having me. Michael outro. Ditto by the way. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the Palestine pod. And thank you to all of our listeners for listening to another episode. You can follow us at the Palestine pod on Instagram. You can find all of our sources at www.palestinepod.com. And if you maybe want to get read on air, go ahead and send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com. That's been another episode of the Palestine pod. We'll see you all next time. Have a great day. I'll ask a question, but I'm just waiting for this ambulance to pass. Where the heck do you live? I swear, it's the, it's the free healthcare. There's no ambulances in America. This is, you know. Yeah, we take Ubers because it's less expensive. <laughs> That's true. I think uh, I think the uh, the ambulance has passed. Um, so, oh come on. <laughs> Yo, that's such good timing.